Please turn with me this morning to Romans and also 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. We have identified as Paul's strategy. It's a divinely initiated strategy for Paul's epistle to the Romans, the last of the church epistles that Paul wrote, somewhere around 51, 52 A.D. And it's important to note two things about Romans. We're, we're, our struggle is interpretation. We're, our goal is to unchain the true gospel. And the true gospel is found in Romans, of course. Romans 1, 1 to 17. We have Paul's introduction. From 1, 2 to 4, especially, where he outlines the gospel as being God's good news all about his son, who, according to the flesh, born of the seed of David, and by his resurrection from the dead, by the spirit of sanctification, demonstrated dramatically to be the son of God. Paul then breaches a little bit of the epistolary etiquette to get to the heart of the gospel and to introduce it as a Christocentric gospel. Today's message, the 20th in Better Call Paul, will be entitled Paul's Christocentric Gospel. It's a term, Christocentric, that's bandied about in pastoral circles and doesn't really mean that until you see the gospel unchained. So 116 to 17 specifically is Paul's thesis statement. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is the power of salvation to those who participate in the faithfulness of Christ. I was thinking in Pastor Brown's prayer today that Jesus Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith, which means our fidelity. Our faithfulness is a participation with him the author and perfecter of it. His faith was not faith to appropriate justification or salvation. His was a fidelity to God, and that fidelity continues in the church. For as the scripture goes on to say, the righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. As a result of Christ being the righteous one, And his faithfulness to the death of the cross, his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, God also raised him from the dead. God exalted him to his right hand. And so we have the enthronement of Christ. The gospel then, its thesis statement by Paul is in 116 to 17. 118 to 32 is the teacher. That's the teacher's speech. It's a blocked speech. And we've demonstrated that this kind of thing happens elsewhere in Paul. Paul does the fool's resume in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16, all the way through 12, 10. The fool's resume, a blocked speech. There's another blocked speech about the experience of a hypothetical person trying to live by the gospel of the teacher and the frustration that comes from it in Romans chapter 7, verses 5 through 25. So that's not a rare or unusual or anomaly, anomalous thing. 118 to 32 is the teacher's prelude to his so-called gospel. No references to Christ because his gospel is not Christocentric. It's anthropocentric. It is centered in man and man's desert or man's deserving. So we have the teacher. Now in Romans 2, and this is what I've been trying to skirt around. This is the hardest part of Romans for me, one of the hardest parts. Starting at 2.1, we have Paul replying and saying, you're saying that the pagans are without excuse because of their contemplation of the cosmos. They should recognize God because they don't. God acts in retributive justice, according to the teacher, and hands them over three times, hands them over, paradidomy, paradidomy, hands them over, hands them over to egregious and immoral things when Paul says, but you teacher are really the one that is without excuse and to one. So we're going to take up there. The strategy that Paul has is pulling down the stronghold. It's attacking the citadel of this teacher's gospel. Now we have to be aware of two things. One, 
Romans is a dialectic of contradictories. It's the presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1 through 8. In verses chapter 5 through 8, we get the, the unchained gospel. When Paul gets to this passage, we have the unchained gospel. When he hits Romans 3, from Romans 3, 21 to 26, we have an anticipation of the unchained gospel. The righteousness of God revealed apart from the law, and we get into the propitiation of Christ for the sins that were beforehand and the sins that followed, and the demonstration of God's righteousness being the righteous act of God, the saving act of God in Christ. Then Paul starts flying in 5 through 8. He hits the accelerator and doesn't let up on the gas until 8.39 with a declaration that nothing shall separate us from the love of God as it's been demonstrated in Christ Jesus. He then deals the problem of Israel's unbelief. And Israel is also, along with all pagans, in Adam. And in Adam all die, including Israel. But in Christ, all will be made alive. We want to get to this unchained gospel And so the interpretive tool is important, that we understand that there's a dialectic of contradictories. I tuned in for about five minutes to hear a preacher, an evangelical preacher, a famous one, preach the gospel this morning, and he preached exactly the gospel that Paul does not preach. It's a mixture. So there's two things we have to be aware of. One, Paul, in his antithetical, Christocentric gospel, is revealing his gospel over against this Jewish Christian teachers gospel, which is a gospel of justification by works, basically. But what we also have to be aware of is what we're struggling against in our modern times is a construal or an interpretation of Paul. Instead of dividing these two gospels and seeing them as precise opposites and absolutely antagonistic and seeing Paul pull down the stronghold and demolish the citadel of human deserving and anthropocentric righteousness. Instead of seeing that, people have tried to maintain a tension between the two. And so the gospel has come to be, okay, everybody, including pagans apparently, try to live by the law, which is really kind of strange because they weren't given the law, but Paul addresses that. And because they find that they can't live by the law, they despair. They realize that they are courting hell. They're going to go to hell. And so they hit a point of despair, and then along comes God lowering the bar. Oh, you don't have to fulfill all the Torah. All you need to do is believe. And so faith alone, sola fides, became the banner of some of the reformers like Melanchthon. So it's still something that has to come from man. There has to be some kind of positive signals recognized by God according to this construal that we are up against in our time. Now, I had a problem with that because, as I said, Paul says when God was pleased to reveal his son to me, he did so so that Paul could preach Christ to the pagans. When God was pleased to reveal his son to Paul, Paul was not at that moment sending up positive signals. He wasn't showing some kind of positive signal to the gospel. He was breathing out murderous threats against Jesus Christ and his church, which Paul's own testimony illustrates that When God is pleased, he slams dunks you into Christ, and that includes a transformation, a liberation, and a whole lot of other things that are going to come with the unchained gospel. So we have Paul in 1, 1 to 17. We have Paul, especially in 1, 2 to 4, introducing the gospel. 1, 16 to 17, the thesis statement, the righteous shall live by faith, the righteousness of God, which is his saving act of rescue in Christ Jesus. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. One seventeen goes on to say, therein, in that gospel, this righteousness of God is apocalypto. It is apocalyptically revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. The faithfulness of Christ 
to the father and that faithfulness continuing in the church as participation. Faith is not therefore, according to Paul's gospel, the means of appropriating salvation. The faithfulness of Christ is the way that salvation is mediated. He's the only mediator between God and man. Faith is not the mediator between unsaved man and God. Christ is the mediator. We'll see that in Galatians three. When faith came is when Christ came and we'll see that unfold. But what we've got to do now is the hard work. And I know it's Sunday morning and I know it's a playoff day, but we are teaching the Bible today. Now, the dialectic continues. I didn't want to do this. I've been skirting around preparing a lot of other things. And then the Holy Spirit sort of said, sit down and do the hard thing. Now, here's the hard thing. I'm going to start with Romans 2.1. This is Paul speaking. I'm going to tell you when Paul's speaking. I'm going to tell you when the teacher is speaking. Soon, I'm expecting a translation in which these things are revealed. And the punctuation is proper. The Christian Jewish Bible comes closest. It's edited by a man named David Stern. It's called the Complete Jewish Bible, I believe. He comes close to understanding this as a dialectic between Paul and this other teacher. Therefore, you, you'll notice in Romans 1.20, this teacher says the pagans are without excuse. Paul says, you are without excuse, O man. He addresses a person, a, a person in the second person singular. You are without excuse, O man, whoever you are who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you pronounce judgment on yourself because you are doing the same things. In two, Paul goes on to say, you say, and so this is the teacher. You say, he's continuing from 132, where the teacher says they know the penalty of, these to do, of doing these things is death, and yet they continue to do them, and they applaud others who do them. And so he continues here in verse, so Paul says, you say, and this is the teacher continuing, we know that the judgment of God on those who do such things as according to truth. That's not Paul. That's Paul quoting the teacher. He anticipates this teacher's arrival in Rome. He's protecting the Romans. He's forearming them so that they are ready. Verse 3, he continues. The teacher continues. Do you think, and then Paul inserts his own phrase here, oh man, again, he addresses him. When you judge, do you think when you judge, Paul inserts this little phrase right in the middle of the teacher. The teacher says, do you think those who practice such things escape the judgment of God? But Paul puts right in that same sentence, do you think, and here's what Paul says, oh man, that Jewish Christian teacher, that when you judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God. So Paul's moving toward a universality of judgment if he's going to judge the pagans he's going to judge those who judge the pagans etc verse 4 the the this is now the teacher goes on or do you scorn the wealth of god's benevolence now he's still wagging his finger at the pagans this jewish teacher he's supposed to be teaching the children he's supposed to be guiding those in darkness to the light as paul gets on to say sarcastically later on and he's still, so he's still pointing the finger in verse 4. Do you scorn the wealth of God's benevolence and clemency and patience, ignorant of the fact that God's benevolence leads you to repentance? But because of your hard and unrepentant heart, you are storing up yourself for yourself wrath on the day of wrath. Now that day of wrath is coming, and it's God's wrath against hostility against sin and death, not against people, not against humanity, not against mankind. But this preacher, this teacher says, the day of wrath, when God's righteous, and by implication he means retributive judgment will be revealed, apocalypto. He anticipates a time, you see now, here comes hell into the picture. God is going to justify people they can never really be sure though because the justification happens in this final moment of history the eschaton when god judges according to the teacher now notice now he quotes a verse 
but he misplaces its application. The teacher goes on to say in verse 6, for he will render to each person according to his works. He's quoting Psalm 62.12. He's quoting Proverbs 24.12. We have a comparative thing here in Matthew 16.27. And in, we saw it in Revelation 22.12. I'm coming soon and my reward is with me to give to each person according as his work will be. Will God render to each person according as his work will be? Yes, But this is not referring to if you do certain works, you'll be rewarded with eternal life. Salvation's never in question. Salvation has been enacted by God in Christ. The world has been reconciled to God in Christ. Salvation is never in question. No foundation can be laid but that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, the heart and soul of Paul's gospel, the Son of God. But this guy says, notice how he applies it. He will render to each person according to his works. Eternal life, he says. In verse 7. Eternal life to those who by doggedly doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality. So he's saying God's going to reward your good works with eternal life. Sounds like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As if it's an inheritance or a reward for works. That's this teacher's idea also. And in verse 8, but wrath and retributive judgment. Remember the God of this other gospel. Both the gospel of the teacher and the gospel of the evangelical church at large is a God primarily of retributive justice and not of limitless benevolence. Retributive judgment to the self-seeking and to those who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. Verse 9, yes, there will be tribulation and anguish upon every soul of man who produces evil. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who carries out the good. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And then he quotes another passage. He quotes Deuteronomy 10.17. And Paul twists it back to the true meaning. For God shows no favoritism. Paul's going to turn that whole thing around and say, yeah, indeed he shows no favoritism. When he saves Jews and Gentiles alike through the faithfulness of his son, Jesus Christ. This guy's saying God shows no favoritism. He will justify on the basis of good works. He will condemn on the basis of self-seeking and evil works. So, as many, as verse 12, this is the teacher again. This is another gospel. For as many who sin apart from the law, Paul's going to actually go here in Romans 3.21 and take that little phrase, apart from the law, There is a righteousness of God revealed apart from law. Not a wrath of God, a saving act of God in Christ. For as many as who sin apart from the law, that's pagans, will also perish without the law. And all who will sin will have sinned after or under the law will be judged by the law. And here's where he really reveals his true colors. For it is not the hearers of the law, that's Torah, who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Judaism never was a proponent of this. Judaism did not say this. But this teacher distorted both Judaism and the gospel by saying this. Now, it's tricky here, but Paul puts a parenthesis here. In 2.14. And if you keep the parenthesis out, 2.14 to 15. Now, I know we have to do this work today. I'm almost apologetic for it, but I had to do it first. Notice how 13 goes directly into 16 without 2.14 and 15, where there should be a parenthesis of Paul coming in. Because Paul's throwing a monkey wrench into the machinery of this false gospel, of this teacher. Notice how this goes together. 2.13 right into 16. For it is not the hearers of the law who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Verse 16, on the day. 
that God judges the secrets of mankind. He sees justification only as happening in the eschaton. That's why you ask people, are you going to heaven when you die? And they say, I hope so. Because they don't know if they're going to be justified or not until the day when God either recognizes their perfect obedience or recognizes a quantity of good works over the quantity of bad works. If you're 5149, you're in, you see. But this teacher says you're justified by the works of the law, and the justification, though, isn't certain until that day. Now, Paul adds a parenthesis at the end of 2.16 also. So there's two parentheses. One, Romans 2.14 and 15. The second is Romans 2.16b. Paul says in 2.16b, according to my gospel, he does this through Jesus Christ. There's a, there's a missing factor in this other gospel. Jesus Christ. Paul says, according to my gospel, this judgment will be through Jesus Christ. Kata Yesu Christu. Now, this is where I want to give credit to the complete Jewish Bible. It seems to grasp the debate here. This is how David Stern translated Romans 2.16. He says, on a day when God passes judgment on people's inmost secrets, parenthesis, according to the good news as I proclaim it, as if showing a contrast to this other thing, he does this through the Messiah, Yeshua. So Romans 2.13 moves smoothly into verse 16 without the parenthesis, verses 14 to 15. If this was only punctuated, I wouldn't have to do this. So there will be, I think there are already translators reading Douglas Campbell's book in order to get the right picture here, and I'll be anticipating that. Hopefully it'll come out while I'm still kicking. Romans 2.13 moves smoothly into 16 without the parenthesis in verse 14 and 15. But in that parenthesis, Paul throws a monkey wrench into the machinery of that gospel. In other words, he kind of plants some C4 at the basis of the citadel of this thing. Because 2.14 says this, let's read now with both parentheses, Romans 2.13 through 16. The teacher, he says, for it is not the hearers of the law who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Now see what we're doing here. This is in total contrast to Paul's gospel. Paul is annihilating this gospel. But the second thing we're having to deal with, it's a battle on two fronts. We're dealing with an interpretation since the Reformation, and even since a few hundred years right after the patristic theologians who knew there was a a universal saving significance to Christ and a universal impact of his cross. What happened in the Western culture is an interpretation of Romans came in that didn't see the distinction between these two Gospels, which is radical, and so they tried to mix it and and present it in a kind of creative tension. And so you have this idea today of, well, here's how you get saved. You try to live by the law, you get into despair. You're afraid of hell, you deserve hell, you're scared to death. The gospel comes along and relieves you. God is very angry, you see. He's very mean-spirited. He doesn't care much for you, and he doesn't like humanity. He hates everybody, and he's going to send them to hell. But he does have this other thing. He has another side of him, which is sort of like love. He loves. And so he gives his son to bear the wrath of the angry father to save you. Now, isn't that a wonderful thing God did for you? And it sounds wonderful. But that's not the gospel. So we have... And it's rampant through fundamentalism. It's rampant through Christianity. It's rampant through the churches across the West. The 
instead of distinguishing these two gospels, which I'm trying to do with every breath of and every fiber of my being, 24 hours a day in my mind and in my study and in these, this pulpit, without distinguishing these two radically different gospels, the only thing you can do is try to hold them together and you present this half-baked thing. And what it does is it preserves mankind in Adam's ontology and it makes the flesh smell sweet. It gets to the good side of the Adamic ontology and preserves that. But that's all. And then it's Christianized. And so it's radically different the way we're doing it here. And this is the way Paul intended it. Romans 2.13, the teacher says, for it is not the hearers of the law who will be righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. But Paul says this, and he puts a little parenthesis in here. He's talking back to this guy, and he says, so, according to this reasoning, when pagans who don't have Torah do instinctively that which the Torah requires, they are a Torah to themselves. Not having Torah, I call this verse, and the movie was on recently, Torah, Torah, Torah. That was the uh, battle cry on December 7th, 1941. But there's three references here, and it's a shame that the New Testament doesn't show this word namas as being Torah, specifically the Torah. So Paul says, well, what are you going to do then about these pagans who seem to fulfill the law, the requirement of the law? who don't have the law and they become a law to themselves. And he goes on in verse 15, they show the work of Torah written in their hearts. He's actually implying here. What about pagan Christians? What about pagan Christians? It's implication. Their conscience between one another also bears witness to this, either accusing or excusing them. So Paul throws a monkey wrench in and says, what about the pagan who seems to obey the law and he's not circumcised? Is his uncircumcision, he goes in verse 26, is his uncircumcision going to be counted as circumcision on the day when God judges everyone? And then he goes later on, and we won't get into that today, a second monkey wrench into the machinery, a second plantation of C4 at the base of the citadel of this false gospel. What are you going to do about the Jews with the law who are circumcised and follow the dietary laws, but also egregiously offend the law? as there was a famous case in 19 AD in Rome of some Jews who did some horrible things, and they were people who said they had the law and were circumcised. What are you going to do with the law-abiding pagan, the Torah-abiding pagan, and the Torah-defying circumcised Jew? What's going to happen to them on that day according to your reasoning? And so, Paul lets the guy continue. On the day when God judges the secrets of mankind. But Paul then says in his parentheses, according to my gospel, he does this through Jesus Christ. So in the first parenthesis, 2.14 to 15, Paul challenges the teacher based on the teacher's own reasoning. If then on the day of judgment, people will be justified by the works of the law, then what about pagans who fulfill the conduct required by the law? For example, these pagans, you call pagans, who are Christians, who are loving God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loving one another because the Holy Spirit's in them pouring out the love of God in their hearts. What about them? Will they be justified by God in that day? Will they be counted then as being circumcised, which you, teacher, require for justification and or salvation? In the second parenthesis, Paul reveals his own Christocentric eschatology. On that day, that eschaton, all the human race will be judged on the basis of or through Jesus Christ. In other words, God will see the whole human race in Jesus Christ. The judgment of works then will simply be the fiery appearance of Christ burning off all works performed in the Adamic ontology called the flesh. 
and leaving all works performed in participation with Messiah's faithfulness and the power of the Holy Spirit. Those works, those activities remain as reward. That's 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15. Salvation is never in question for any human being because no other foundation can be laid than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, a missing factor. He's sidelined. This other teacher is like a coach who doesn't let his star player in. So his star player is saying, put me in, coach, put me in, coach. Paul says, I'll put you in because Jesus Christ is the star player here in the second parenthesis Paul reveals his own Christological eschatology Paul doesn't separate the eschaton from Jesus Christ the other gospel does and you're left with a fearsome angry God and you with your works or you with your lack of works and you better measure up So according to Paul's gospel, no one is judged except through or according to or on the basis of Jesus Christ. Arguably then, and this is my argument and I'll put it forth. If all are judged through Jesus Christ. Then all are saved. Bottom line. Jesus Christ has been effectively sidelined in the teacher's gospel. The teacher's gospel is anthropocentric. It's centered in Mankind, mankind's ability to reason about the essence and the existence of God through a contemplation of the cosmos. And that assumes that man is rational and self-interested and he's going to look at the cosmos and say, well, that shows me that God is incorruptible and it shows me that God has power and he has all these attributes. And he may or may not recognize this. But if he doesn't, Does God hand him over to judgment and to perform these egregious things? If he does, then God's the author of those evil acts. That's anthropocentric. Paul's gospel says there is none that seeks after God. There is none that understands. No one can understand God to the degree that is a recognition of his total essence and being by a contemplation of the cosmos. There is none that seeks after God. Well, the teacher said, if anybody seeks for glory, immortality, and incorruptibility, which is three ways of circumventing the name God, those who seek for God will be rewarded with eternal life. Paul says, there's a problem with that. There is none that seeketh God. In other words, man has a radical incapacity ethically and epistemologically in terms of knowledge, in terms of reasoning, in terms of ethics. And there has to be an unconditional saving act of God in Christ. You say, well, believing is easy. No, it isn't. Believing is impossible. You can't be faced with a message that you have no proof for and to be asked to believe it. So you can pretend to believe it. You can work up belief in it. But faith is never, in Paul's gospel, the means of appropriating salvation. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith, which means his faithfulness continues in the church. Faith is a means of appropriating assurance that we are saved, not appropriating a justified status before God. I know that puts a big dent in what's being preached in Western culture in general. Jesus Christ has been effectively sidelined in the teacher's gospel. The teacher's gospel is anthropocentric. Paul reveals in stark contrast, not only that God's good news is all about Jesus Christ, God's son, and thus Christocentric, he also declares that the final judgment will be through Jesus Christ. Now, he has already established in a quote of Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous one being Jesus Christ. This isn't a person who is made righteous by faith and then is told to live by faith. This righteous one is Jesus Christ who lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness 
which is his obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Wherefore, God has also highly exalted him. The gospel is, is the Christ event. It's the incarnation. And without the incarnation, which the gospel today, the false gospel, the justification theory gospel, omits or relegates to the sidelines as the incarnation, failing to recognize that when Jesus Christ took on flesh, he identified with all humanity. He embraced all of humanity. In fact, because he became flesh, he embraced all creation. The magnitude and immensity of the act of salvation, which we call so great salvation, is not recognized today, that it's a sweeping rescue of all creation and all mankind that has been done when Jesus said to Telestai, which is equivalent to Asa in Psalm 22:31. The generations to come will know that it is done but asa means made or created when jesus cried out to telestai he said it's made it's it's created what is created the new creation it's done that's why bonhoeffer was so brilliant when he said you can't look at the world again the same way because it's been reconciled there's no corner of it so forlorn, so evil, so darkened that you can't see it as being reconciled to God. So, notice again, Paul reveals his gospel to be all about Jesus. He declares that this final judgment will be through Jesus Christ. He has already established that Jesus Christ is the righteous one. We know that from 1 Peter 3.18. He, the righteous one, died for the unrighteous. That's everybody else. In order to hide us from God. No, in order to bring us to God. You want to know what the father's like? Then see Christ crucified. That's the father's crucified love. First Peter 3.18. What did Ananias in Damascus on straight street say to Paul when he was setting Paul straight? He said, God has ordained that you should see the righteous one and hear his voice. The righteous one is Jesus Christ. And he is the righteous one who is the propitiation for our sins, but not our sins only, the sins of the whole world. So if Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who lives by resurrection because of his faithfulness, is the one through whom God judges all people, then he's going to judge all people through the righteous one who is the propitiation for their sins. I hope you follow that reasoning somehow by the power of the Holy Spirit. We've also established then that the righteous one, Jesus Christ, is the propitiation for the sins of the world. That's 1 John 2, 1. There's also kind of a little tension going on in 1 John. There's a confessional piety in which we have to confess our sins, and if we confess them, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. But then John goes on to say, but I'm writing to you to let you know that you should sin not. That is, put on Christ and don't and put off the old Adamic ontology. But if any man sins, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. Why doesn't Paul get into that confessional piety? Not once in his 10 church epistles, does he ever say that we have to confess our sins? He says that by the blood of Christ, we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins in Ephesians 1.7. And then he says, now, knowing that, put off the old man, the Adamic ontology that can do nothing but reproduce sinfulness and put on the new man, which is created in Christ Jesus and is according to his image. Why doesn't Paul ever say we've got to go around confessing? So we're sin conscious all day long that I sin. Or at the end of the day, the last thing you do is not watch a movie, but get into bed and say, let me re review the whole day and make sure that there's not a sin that I committed that I haven't confessed. Confessional piety. Now, that may be okay at a certain phase. I don't know. But Paul says, I write, or John goes on to say, I write to you little children, baby Christians to let you know that your sins are forgiven. 
That's the whole kit and caboodle all at once. Your sins are forgiven. There's a little tension there. You say, are you saying it's the same thing as in Romans? No, but I'm saying it's interesting. It's intriguing. And I'll explain it someday if I understand it myself. So Romans 2.14, I want you to see this in Romans because we are teaching Romans here. It's a parenthesis inserted by Paul in which he highlights a potential embarrassment to the teacher's stance that the doers of the law will be justified in the eschaton. Now God is going to have all the males apparently do what Braveheart did, lift up your kilts. If you're circumcised, you've got a good start here. Now, that's absurd, of course. So is this other gospel. It's called a reductio ad absurdum, reducing it to absurdity because it is absurd. So again, in 2.14, Paul throws a monkey wrench or he plants C4 at the base of the citadel. What about the Torah obeying pagans? In other words, Micah says, this is what God requires of you, that you walk modestly and humbly before your God. What if pagans do that without being circumcised? Where do they end up in the final assize, in the final assessment? Do uncircumcised pagans get justified? And do circumcised Jews who rob the temple, which is one of the things that a certain group of Jews did in Rome, which is a famous event in 19 AD, do they get justified? So the whole problem with justification is a problem. Paul's gospel isn't a forensic legal account of adjusting to the justice of God or God's justice will adjust to you and send you to hell forever and ever and ever, begging for forgiveness for the rest of eternity, not getting it. Too late. No. Paul's gospel is a gospel of a God of unlimited unrestricted love and kindness shown in Christ Jesus. So in closing, later in Romans, especially verses 17 to 25, Paul throws another wrench in by bringing the example of circumcised Jews who have the law, set the kosher table, undo all the right things, and yet they are egregious offenders of the law, with historical evidence of a famous case that happened in Rome, which everybody knew about at the time in Romans in, in AD 19. So Paul says, what about these guys? In Romans 2.26, Paul is even more explicit in his query. Look at 2.26. If then the uncircumcision observes the requirements of the Torah, will his uncircumcision not be accounted as circumcision? That means on the day when God judges the secrets of all mankind. Now it's here where we want to look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. This is the divine strategy. I'm imitating this strategy in the teaching of Romans. The most important tool in the interpretation of Romans is the knowledge that this is a dialectic of contradictories, that Paul is not agreeing with or having creative tension with or is having some kind of a a detente with this other gospel. It's Paul annihilating, decimating, demolishing, blowing all to hell, plucking up, pulling down, rooting out, and destroying like Jeremiah did in his day as a prophet to the nations. Paul does as an apostle to the pagans. The apostle to the pagans takes this teacher to school. Come on, teacher. Come to my school. And this is the strategy. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians before he wrote Romans. This gives me the idea that Paul had this strategy in his mind as the way to write the epistle to the Romans. For although we walk around in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. That's the Adamic ontology. Because the weapons deployed in our campaign are not fleshly. On the contrary, they are powerful through God for the destruction of fortresses, for the takedown of rationalism or reasonings, the rationalistic gospel of the teacher. 
And every lofty thing, that's every lofty argument raised up in opposition against the knowledge of God. This gospel is a, an assault on the knowledge of God who is love. This gospel, this false gospel, is an assault on the knowledge of God whose love means limitless beneficence toward his creation in which nothing and no one can ever be called irredeemable. Notice what he says. Raised up in opposition against the knowledge of God, and he said, and subduing every purpose to obedience to Christ. God's going to have a day when he judges people and their secrets. Paul says, yes, but let me bring that into obedience to Christ through Jesus Christ. In other words, Paul says he takes this gospel, this other gospel, which is idolatrous. It's an idolatrous gospel of human deserving. I'd like to take some of these Christian preachers who present this hell doctrine and and try to scare people to death and bring this misconstrual of Paul's gospel, this mixture of the teacher and Paul. I'd like to take some of them and say, does not the scripture say that no idolater will enter the kingdom of heaven? And they'll say, yes, it says that right in 1 Corinthians 6. Well, you're an idolater because your gospel is an idol. It's an idol offered to a God in a high place that sidelines Jesus Christ, that marginalizes the event of Christ's crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and enthronement, in which he's enthroned over the whole world and in which his kingdom is now the kingdom. The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of Christ. So apparently you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's my way of doing what Paul did to this teacher, to the evangelical pastor who tells people that they're courting hell if they keep up on the path they're on. So then, Paul's idea, make the idolatrous gospel of human deserving bow to the Christocentric gospel, the gospel of Christ. What I'm showing you is that what I'm saying in our theological teaching can be shown right down in the works of the exegesis of the scripture. The teacher, it seems, is being taken to school by the apostle to the pagans. In Romans 2.6, the teacher cites Psalm 62.12. And I want you to get this today if you don't get anything else. He cites Psalm 62.12. He will render to each person according to his works that's true on one level but not on the soteriological level everyone benefits from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ his obedience to the extent of death by the cross because by the disobedience of one man Adam everyone including Abraham and including all of Israel becomes under sin through the obedience of one God gives life giving deliverance to all Romans 5 18 to 19 the heart of the matter so the teacher says he will render it each person according to his works but he twists this verse into a soteriological principle or a principle of salvation by saying that this means eternal life is rendered To those who do good. Now that's either got to be perfectionistic good, which is a problem. Or, like many people think, God has these scales up there and your works are measured. And if you get 5149, you're in. If you get 4951, bye-bye. Blast furnace forever. Screaming in unrelenting horror and pain forever and ever by God who is love making you do that. It's absurd. If you think I'm mocking that gospel, you're damn right. So, he also says, wrath and retributive judgment is rendered to the self-seeking and those who disobey the truth but obey unrighteousness. 
Paul does not disagree that God will render to each one according to his works. But this is only applicable after the foundation is already laid, which is Jesus Christ, who's not sidelined in Paul's gospel. He's the star. Where do you find this? 1 Corinthians 3, 13 to 15. Here's the point. God will render to each person according to his works by the burning up of all works and activities done in the Adamic ontology, which is a whole lot of Christian activity, the majority of it. In fact, I'm almost tempted to say, in our day, all of it. Because if it proceeds from the wrong source, the wrong gospel, what the hell is it then? Now, people are saying, you haven't given us much room to walk on. That's right. We're off the land now. You're going to have to walk on water. God will render to each person by burning up all works and activities done in the Adamic ontology or the flesh and by rewarding all works done in participation with Christ's fidelity and faithfulness and by the Spirit's power. In the hypothetical case of the person who has done nothing ever, even once, in participation, with Christ's faithfulness and the Spirit's empowerment. All of his Christianity has just been something he's reconfigured the sugar into things that don't look like they're deadly to eat. Like I used to look at the, I used to say, Little Debbie, responsible for the death of millions. Never mind, that's not true. But it's just, in other words, let's take the sugar, but let's reconfigure it into something that almost is a good, it's a good thing to eat this. Now, believe me, I'm the worst offender of that. I go to Sugar Anonymous or whatever it is. And so I have a resolution for the year 2017, never to eat sugar again, ever. I got to eat this lifesaver now. Now, now, in closing, clo- really in closing. In the hypothetical case of a person who never does anything in participation with Christ's faithfulness, what happens? All of his works are burned up, but he himself shall be saved. But so as through fire. First Corinthians 3.15. Salvation is never in question for anybody. I'll tell you when I was saved. Here's my testimony. I was saved on a day in April in AD 30. God revealed his son to me on a certain day in January in 1972. I was saved in AD 30, but he was pleased to reveal his son to me in January of 1972. And then give me faith after he revealed his son to me. Hmm. I love my testimony because it squares with the gospel of God about his son. God will render to each person according to his works by the burning up of all works done in the Adamic ontology and by rewarding all works done in participation with Christ's fidelity and the spirit's power. The teacher, and this is the last thing I want to emphasize, the teacher has applied the eschatological truth of judgment with no Christological reference. He has referenced a day of judgment without a reference to Christ. The biggest nightmare is any dream where Christ isn't in it. And the best you can do with this other gospel is be the hero of your every fantasy. So the teacher has applied the eschatological truth of judgment with no Christological reference or involvement. 
Moreover, he has applied the concept of God rendering to each person as his work shall be. He's made that a soteriological matter minus Christology. A salvation minus Christ. It's anthropocentric. Pneumatology, which we studied, which means the spirit, and the grace of God the Father is out of this picture. The teacher has also left himself without a defense by quoting Deuteronomy 10.17 by saying God shows no favoritism. He gives agony to everybody who follows up, Jew and Gentile alike. Paul says, you're right. God shows no favoritism when he justifies Jew and Gentile, when he delivers by grace in his act of rescue, both Jews and Gentiles with no respect of persons. Israel is a special elect entity in God's plan, but even Israel is in Adam as much as all the pagans are in Adam. The whole point is, in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. Paul will play on this and turn it to favor his gospel, showing that God is the God of Jews and Gentiles, and that he delivers both Jews and Gentiles without favoritism on the basis of the fidelity of Jesus Christ. Specifically, the faithful obedience of Christ to the extent of death by crucifixion, which was an act rewarded by his resurrection from the dead. We were in him. When he was incarnated, we were in him when he lived a life of vicarious obedience for us to his father. We were in him when he was crucified. The song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was. I was in him. I was crucified with Christ. I was buried with him. Something symbolized by baptism, not something that happens when you're baptized. I was raised together with him. I was ascended together together with him and now I'm seated together with him in heavenly places. I can say that retrospectively. I know what I was saved from because I'm in Christ. When you're outside of Christ, you don't know what you need to be saved from. It's only once you're in Christ that retrospectively you look back and see what you've been saved from. That's why the gospel is the power of salvation to everyone who's in Christ. They look back and they see that gospel was the power of salvation. You don't know that until you're in Christ. We got the whole thing wrong. And I speak we as the church. You know what's going to happen in the future? Right in here in this place? A whole new redefinition of what the church is. What is it? What's its function? How does it look at the world? Is it an exclusive club? What was Judaism? Was Paul critiquing Judaism? Never. He was critiquing a pious group of misinterpreters of Judaism. Judaism never said, obey the law and God will give you righteousness. But this teacher did. So my request to you is pray that I and the others who communicate this gospel will be able to make known the mystery, which is the gospel, the mystery in which God plans and intends and will do his will to sum up everything in his son, Christ Jesus. That we'll be able to make this mystery known as we ought to with boldness. Why boldness? Because it goes against every single bit of the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age and Western culture and Western evangelical Christendom. Pray for me. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. And we do pray that the gospel will be made known in its mystery form, not in its distorted, forensic, legal, righteousness kind of way, but in the mystery that can be summarized, our salvation can simply be summarized in the small, tiny phrase, en Christo, in Christ. Where sin no longer reigns, where death no longer reigns, but where a lamb is on the enthroned throne of the universe at the right hand of the Father. 
I pray that you'll bless the services that are coming forth. Phil's power gospel service this Thursday, which was postponed to that date. We pray that that will be a great blessing, not only to him, but to all those who come and hear him. We thank you for the privilege, Father, of teaching this gospel, preaching this word, and having it go throughout this country and throughout our generation and our children's generation and our grandchildren's generation. We have an expectation that's nothing less than this gospel taking hold across the gamut of Christendom and beyond. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.